Book of Isaiah, chapter 2. I was standing back there listening as, as Josh was sharing about victory in Jesus. And I, I'm going to be honest with you, the very first thing that came to mind when he said, we have victory in Jesus, is, this is it? <laughs> this, this is all, I mean, this, now think about this for a minute. Victory in Jesus. He died on the cross to save us from our sins, to set us free from our sins. But if we don't get the reality of what that means out of the esoteric box and into real life, we're always going to have this little niggling thought in the back of our heads, how much victory really has been won here? I'm still in this body. I'm still dealing with life. I still have financial struggles. I still have physical struggles. I still have emotional struggles. Whatever it might be, victory in Jesus. And it's no wonder that people end up wandering off, leaving church, getting out of relationship with Jesus because they think, it's just, I don't see the big difference. Let me tell you something. The Word of God, one of the primary reasons I believe the Lord gave us His Word is that we might see and know the reality of victory. That we might understand really the truth, not only of what is spiritually, but what is coming in actuality, in reality. There is truth to all of this game. And Isaiah comes along 700 years before Christ and begins to talk about Christ, to talk about the coming of Jesus. And back in Isaiah's day of prophesying, when he would say things like, unto us a child is born and a son is given. When he says in Isaiah 7.14, you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. It must have sounded at that point to the people like, that's cool, but what does it mean? How does that apply to me now in this life? And they couldn't see what the truth was that 700 years later Jesus would come on the scene. Not as some vague spiritual notion, but as a man in the flesh, in all truth and reality. And I keep coming back to that word reality because the victory we have in Jesus Christ is not some dream, it's not a mindset, it's not a lifestyle, it is a reality. And Isaiah is going to show us that this morning. And I, you know, I just pray that God will give us eyes to see with the same kind of vision that Isaiah had. Isaiah saw 700 years ahead. I pray that we might be able to see however long it is. It's not 700 years, I can almost guarantee that. But that we might be able to see what is coming. To see the reality of God's kingdom. As much as the reality of Jesus' first coming, may we have the reality of His second coming And not believe it, again, as some spiritual thing that Christians hang their hopes on, but as truth. Something we can sing about. You know, we were singing, uh, Gloria, in excelsis Deo. Gloria! And I I looked around, and I know it's early, I realize that. But I saw so many faces, and it just cracked me up, singing, Gloria! We would not sing it that way if Jesus was standing right here, would we? we would, we'd be amazed. I want the reality in my heart. I hope you do too. The truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is not something we just toy with. It is truth. So Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1, buckle up, prepare yourselves. 
the word which Isaiah the son of Amon saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised up above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us concerning His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and He will judge between the nations, and He will render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Father, this this wonderful, amazing, spectacular prophecy, Lord, I recognize and believe that this is a truth that is to come. That we may be moments away, days away. That if you come today, Lord, we're roughly seven years away from this reality. And I am so, Lord, thankful that you have given us your word to remind us time and time again of your presence, of the truth of your existence, Lord, and of your wonderful plan that is bigger than just my life. A plan that is eternal and that is being played out right before our very eyes and being worked out. Father, thank you that you've given us your word to show us this. Thank You for pouring out Your Holy Spirit into our hearts, Father, so that the veil might be lifted and we could see these things and understand. And Lord, I pray the veil would be lifted this morning from anyone who has yet to believe in Christ Jesus. For anyone, this service, the next, third service, whenever, Father, that if there's someone who wanders into the barn today who has a veil over their, their eyes because they've never really professed faith in Jesus, remove it, Father, with faith in their hearts. And let them see what it is that we are so excited about. And Lord, teach us these things again this morning. Remind us if we need reminding. Refresh if we need refreshing. And Father, teach anew for those who perhaps haven't heard these things before. And may we accept them in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. What is the tallest mountain in the world? Everest. Well, that's a trick question. It's actually not Mount Everest. It's Mount Akea. Mount Akea in Hawaii is actually the tallest mountain in the world. Well, where do you get that? Well, from base to peak, Mount Everest is a total of 29,035 feet. Big mountain. Mount Akea, from sea level to top, is only 13,796 feet. However, 19,684 feet of Mount Akea is below sea level. It's underwater. If you add it all up from the base of Mount Akea on the seafloor all the way to its peak, it rises 33,480 feet, which means it bests Mount Everest by 4,445 feet. Mount Akea is the biggest mountain in the world. Now I mentioned that, I'm going to come back to it because it's an interesting picture for us to consider, comparatively. But the mountain I want to talk about this morning, the mountain that we are called to go to today, is the mountain of the house of the Lord. The mountain of the house of the Lord. I'm amazed that we're so early in Isaiah and already the prophet leaps out to give this epic view. 
He starts talking about this before he even gets to the son given to us, the child who will be born to us. And this prophecy is one that is later. And as we read through it, I hope you realize this has never been fulfilled. We have never seen this happen. When in all of history have all the nations streamed into Jerusalem, as was promised by Isaiah? When has this taken place? Well, it hasn't. This is something yet to come. But it's something that the the prophet prophesied about that would happen after the coming of Jesus before he even began to really prophesy about the coming of Jesus the first time. It's remarkable. And I love that he does it. He he says that it comes about in in the last days. Note that in verse 2. It will come about that in the last days. Now you need to understand it's not the last days as you and I view it. He's not talking to the church here. He's talking to Israel. And the phrase here is Be'acharit Hayamim in the Hebrew, and it means the end of days. It will come about in the end of days. Not the last days. We're in the last days right now for the church. But this is the end of days for Israel. In other words, what he prophesies here is something that takes place after the 70th week of Daniel. We talked about two, three weeks back. After the time of Jacob's trouble. After the seven years of tribulation. At the end of days. After everything is accomplished for Israel. That is where this prophecy begins. But it's good news for all of God's people. Isaiah's vision is so absolutely certain he speaks it in the past tense. I love that. He says it will come about. Well, literally, literally in the Hebrew... It means it came to pass. When Isaiah spoke this, and what the Hebrew people heard, what the Jewish people heard was, now, it came to pass in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established. And they're going, when did that happen? It's like so much prophecy, a foregone conclusion. It's a done deal. It is so absolutely certain that when Isaiah says it, he says it in the past tense as though it's already happened. And you can bank on this one. The mountain of the house of the Lord. Now before we go up this mountain, there's something we need to see that I believe is vital to understanding the prophecies of Isaiah, the entire book. This is foundational stuff, so I want to draw back for a moment and share something that is vital to understanding not only Isaiah's prophecies, but also the mountain of the house of the Lord. A couple of weeks back, we talked about the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. You may recall that. Uh, we spent quite a while on that. 12, 13, 14 reasons why I believe the Bible teaches very specifically a pre-tribulation that the church is pulled out before the seven years of tribulation. And why? And if you haven't heard that, I encourage you to go back and listen and study it through. Not just a perspective, but a, a biblical truth, I believe, that we talked through. Well, we looked at that, but there's another equally important kingdom perspective that you need to understand. There are three primary views concerning Jesus' second coming and the establishment of his kingdom. Three views postmillennial, amillennial, and premillennial. Perhaps you've heard those. You know, people will sometimes ask, Are you postmillennial or premillennial or amillennial? And sometimes people just say, I'm promillennial. I'm all for it. You know, that's the way to go. Just be pro pro whatever God's going to do. And I'm good to go. Regardless of how it comes down. And, and, and when people say that, it, and, and I used to say that, by the way. I'm whatever God wants. Well, what's your opinion? I don't have one. 
Well, why not? I don't understand it. <laughs> don't really care to. You know, let's just stay in the writings of Paul and forget John and Revelation because that's just woohoo. <laughs> when people say that, listen, if you feel that way, that it doesn't really matter what we believe about the coming of Christ or what He's going to accomplish or how it's going to come down, I, I probably ought to just warn you ahead of time, you're not going to have much use for Isaiah if you don't want to know what's coming. Because most of his book, he's going to talk about what's coming. And he's going to lay it out for us. And if it doesn't matter whether you're pre or mid or post or A or any of this stuff, why did God waste so much ink and parchment, not to mention the voice of the prophets, teaching about the kingdom? Why so much prophecy on the coming kingdom? Why did Jesus talk constantly about the kingdom? Why did He pray, Matthew 6.10, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why would He say that? Why would He say to His apostles, Luke 22.28, You are those who have stood by Me in My trials, and just as My Father has granted Me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at My table in My kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. What's that about? Jesus, why did you say in Matthew 16.28, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Why would He say that? Well, let me just give you a little hint here. Peter, James, and John were with Jesus coming down the mountain of transfiguration when He said that. Some of you hear that you know, you're not even going to taste death. Until so you see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Well, Peter died. James died. John eventually died. So which one of them didn't taste death before they saw the kingdom? It was John. Because John in the Revelation saw Jesus coming in His kingdom. Revelation 19. Wrote it down for us that we might see it and be aware of it. Revelation 19 and 20, two of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. In fact, turn there, why don't you? Revelation chapter 20. Keep a finger in Isaiah 2, we'll be back. By the way, while you're turning there, did you know Revelation 19 comes before Revelation 20? No, I mean it does, it really does. Revelation 19 precedes Revelation 20 because the coming of the King precedes the kingdom come. Understand that. The coming of the king precedes the kingdom come. Watch this. Revelation 20, verse 1. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. Now understand, Revelation 19, the coming of Jesus. is described in detail. Prior to Revelation 19, Revelation 6 through 18, all the way through is the tribulation. All right, and we went through all this and stuff that happens before that. The pre-tribulation rapture happens. Then the tribulation. Then the coming of Jesus. Now in Revelation 20, I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for how long? A thousand years. Okay, that's what the Bible says. I'm not making these things up. So just understand, it says a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. Hallelujah until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, 
and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of, God, of Jesus and because of the Word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for how long? A thousand years. Okay, that's the third time he said it in this chapter. The rest of the dead did not come to life until... A thousand years, fourth time, were completed. This is the first resurrection, he says. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part. In the first resurrection over these, the second death has no power, and they will be priests of God and of Christ, and will reign with Him for a thousand years. And then the first half of verse 7 says, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released. And I'm not going to talk about that this morning. That's another teaching for another time. But I want you to notice that six times in this chapter, six times, John specifically delineates a thousand years. Six times. That's that's interesting. Now, there's so much there in Revelation chapter 20. So much to understand and and to take in. But let me just clarify these three main views of the coming kingdom, of when it's supposed to come. Here are the three views. Post-millennialism. View number one, post-millennialism. This view assumes that the coming of Messiah will be post the thousand years of perfect peace. After the kingdom has been established and there has been a kingdom on earth for a thousand years of the church. Post-millennials believe Jesus comes after that. It's interesting that that, that we, the church, build the kingdom. And we establish peace on earth. And we as Christians conquer the world. Which is really more a Muslim mentality. But we take it all over, and then when it's perfect and peaceful and we've ruled it for a thousand years, Jesus shows up and we hand Him the keys of the kingdom like a gift on Christmas morning. There you go. Post-millennial. It denies the king's actual, literal, present, active role in establishing and building His kingdom. Since the church is going to do it. Post-millennialism denies the biblical reality that the kingdom is, listen to this, a promise to and for Israel. That's what the kingdom's about, gang. The kingdom promise, it's only a promise to us in that we are grafted in, but it is originally a promise to Israel, someone to sit on the throne of David. And rule and reign from there. It's what the Jewish people were waiting for. It's why they misunderstood Jesus, because they leaped ahead to the second coming, and they misunderstood His first. More about that later. But remember, Isaiah 9, verse 6 tells us, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Who is us in that chapter? It's Israel. Isaiah is speaking to the Jewish people and he says a son will be given to us. We have co-opted that in the church. We say it you know, pretty much every Christmas. Child will be given to us. And he was. Don't misunderstand me. But he was given, Paul says, to the Jew first. And then to the Greek. First for Israel. And on whose throne does Isaiah say that Messiah will reign? Isaiah 9-7. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. What was David's kingdom? Israel, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The post-millennial view assumes too much, gang. It misses the point. But what shocks me and amazes me is that post-millennialism is on the rise in the church today. I wouldn't have thought that it would happen. In fact, even six years ago, when we taught through Revelation, 
Even at that time, I didn't see it as much as I see it today, people proclaiming that the church is establishing the kingdom on earth. The post-millennial view, it's called dominionism. It's called kingdom now theology. And according to Isaiah and John both together, it is unbiblical. Post-millennialism. Second view, amillennialism. Amillennialism from the, the, the ah from the Greek, which is a negative. In other words, no kingdom. It assumes that the kingdom is not literal, it's spiritual. It's kind of what goes on in our hearts right now. Amillennialism argues against a literal thousand year reign, saying Revelation 20 is the only place in all the Bible that specifies it. Although it does it six times. Which I find fascinating. Besides the fact, is it good theology to say, well that's the only place in the Bible that says that? Tell you what, if it says it once... That should be good enough for us. If it's in God's Word, it's in God's Word. I don't need it repeated 12, 13, 14 times to get it if it's there. Amillennialism assumes that all the prophetic promises of God to restore the kingdom to Israel on earth speaks instead of the church. Replacement theology. Amillennialism and replacement theology, and, well, postmillennialism does too. Replacement theology goes hand in hand. If we replace Israel, then postmillennialism and amillennialism are something that are worth considering if, if we replace Israel. Amillennialism also tries to stretch and spread what John calls a literal thousand years into the current 2,000 year old church age saying that we are in the kingdom figuratively right now. I grew up believing that, by the way. That's just what I assumed. Back when I was pro-millennial, you know, because I don't know what the Bible says about it, and I don't really care, just, it's going to happen however God wants, and we'll just kind of float along until it does. Let me give you a simple question, and this is a litmus test to see whether we are either in a figurative kingdom amillennialism, or we are preparing the kingdom ourselves, post-millennialism, for Jesus, and He'll come after we have it all established. Here is the question. Is Satan bound? If, as post-millennials believe, we, the church, are conquering the world for Christ, how are we doing? (laughs) Hey, and Christianity is still spreading gain. The kingdom is still being seeded throughout the world. But let's be honest. Is Satan bound? If we are presently living in the spiritual kingdom, the figurative rule and reign of Christ, Satan would be impotent to do anything that he's able to do. Look at Revelation 20, verse 2 again. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Is Satan bound? And the answer to that is so obvious. All you have to do is open up the front page. Click on whichever news source you go to online. And there it is. The truth about whether or not Satan is bound. Let me give you just one example. And I had so many, but I cut them out because it's just too much and it's too depressing. Islamabad, Pakistan. Perhaps you heard, news just came out that uh, that two years ago, a girl named Niha, Niha was kidnapped and brutally raped in a field near her home. Why? Because her Christian dad would not convert to Islam. So because he wouldn't convert to Islam, they grab his daughter, take her out to a field, and brutalize her. She was two years old. Is Satan bound? 
When there is that kind of evil in this world, the answer to the question is absolutely obvious. Besides the fact, Peter said in 1 Peter 5.8, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter wrote that in the church age. That does not sound like a bound Satan to me. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Gang, in fact, statistics worldwide reveal right now that Christianity is more persecuted, get this, than any time in church history. That really spun me around this week. I was reading Voice of the Martyrs magazine. Some of you get that. And looking around my house and considering my life and just saying, God, why am I not more persecuted? Not that I want it. (laughs) But seriously, right now we're living in times where Christianity is, there's more mass persecution against Christians on planet Earth now than in any time, including the first century church. Wow. I didn't know that was going on. I mean, I knew there was persecution, but, but worse than ever before. Gang, if, as Peter says, Satan is on the prowl and not bound, then biblically the kingdom reign of Jesus has not yet come. What do you call the church then? Seeds of the kingdom. We are certainly in preparation mode. But if we think by our power we're going to establish the kingdom on earth, we are the most arrogant people who have ever lived. Premillennialism, number three. Premillennialism number three. I may be giving away my perspective. But it assumes the literal and consistent teaching of the Bible. Of an earthly messianic kingdom that will be established as promised to Israel out of Jerusalem for 1,000 years. That it's going to happen. It assumes the literal removal and binding of Satan in the abyss. The Bible calls it the abuso for a 1,000 years. Unable to do anything. Unable to have any influence or impact. It assumes, as Revelation 20 declares, and Isaiah will prophesy, that there can be no lasting peace, no kingdom come, until Messiah Himself brings it. That it depends not on the church, not on you, not on me. It depends on Jesus Christ to come establish His kingdom and His rule. And by the way, premillennialism is also, of the three views, the most Jewish. Because it's the only one that fits the prophecies given to the Jewish people. And I believe, and I have seen it over the years, that the Bible clearly teaches a premillennial coming of Jesus to set up His kingdom and to rule and reign there for a thousand years. With that as background, let's go back to the mountain. But, but let's go by way of Micah. Let me turn to the book of Micah. Toward the end of the Hebrew Scriptures, Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4. If you're not sure where Micah is, it's right about there. See? (laughs) Micah chapter 4, verse 1. It will come about in the last days. Again, the Hebrew phrase, it came to pass. In the last days, or in the end of days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it. Wait a minute, did we just read this somewhere else? 
Verse 2, many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us concerning His ways, or about His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For from Zion the law, from Zion will go forth the law, and even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And He will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. It's almost word for word. Isaiah's mountainous prophecy. Go back to Isaiah chapter 2. Almost word for word, Micah writes the same thing. Well, scholars will say, Well, Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah's. They were both prophesying in Judah at the same time. Micah was younger, but he was there on the scene. So obviously, you know, they shared their prophecies. They must have little mini prophecy conferences, you know, just the two of them. (laughs) Because all the other prophets were heretics. And they must have gotten together and compared notes. Oh, that's good. Let's write that down twice. You know, some say that. Maybe Micah, you know, was a copycat. Or maybe Isaiah was. And there's... It's remarkable what scholars will debate. There's all kinds of debates and papers back and forth about who wrote it and who actually received it and who wrote it first and who copied it from the other guy and all this stuff. And what's amazing to me is my answer is, hey, gang, both got it from the Holy Spirit. Both were given this vision because it is a vision that was given. The word which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. And that word saw is literally had a spiritual vision of. He saw this, what he's writing down. He saw it in, in the Spirit. He was given vision of this. Same with Micah. Was given vision of this. To see it. Well, why would God do that? Why would He give it to Isaiah and then to Micah, both at the same time? And isn't it just possible that He gave it to Isaiah and Isaiah said, Micah, you really need to add this too. I really think God just gave it to both of them. And in comparing their own prophetic scrolls, they went, whoa, you got that? Yeah, I got that. You saw that? I saw that. I saw it first. No, I saw it first. I don't know. You know. But here's the deal, gang. When something matters to God, He puts it in Scripture. When He wants to be sure we don't miss it, He puts it in Scripture again. And many times throughout the Bible, we'll see things repeated, whether it's ideas or thoughts or concepts or visions. Because God is saying, listen, pay attention to this. This is absolutely significant. I think there's another possibility to consider here why both Isaiah and Micah received this vision. Because the Old Testament law, Torah law, determines or states that every fact must be confirmed by the mouths of at least two witnesses. And so the fact of this coming kingdom we now have confirmed by two witnesses, which is legal as far as the Jewish mind is concerned. Pretty cool. Let's look at it. It will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. Taking this at its most plain and simple meaning, this is Jerusalem. And it's speaking the house of the Lord. The mountain is Jerusalem. The house of the Lord is the temple. Not just any temple. It is the millennial temple. Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48, that whole section describes a temple that will be the most magnificent and glorious building in human history. Just a stunning description there. In fact, the structure according to Ezekiel itself is a mile square. The entire temple. 
The prophet Haggai, chapter 2, verse 9, says, The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace. Why will it be greater? Because Messiah will be there. Messiah will enter that house. And Messiah himself will build it. Zechariah the prophet, chapter 6, verse 12, says, Say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will, who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne, and thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices, that is the office of priest and king, and the one who will do this is one whose name is Branch. Netzer in the Hebrew, where the name Nazareth comes from which fulfills the New Testament prophecy, He shall be called a Nazarene. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus the branch. Messiah will branch out. He'll build the temple. But listen, there's more to this prophecy of Isaiah than simply the temple on the mountain. Isaiah calls it the chief of all mountains. Not because it will be physically tallest, but because it will be the most significant. Kind of like Mount Achaia. Mount Achaia is not physically the tallest by our eyes. As we look at it, it doesn't look taller than Mount Everest does. But significantly, substantively, substantively, it is bigger. It is greater. It is a more awesome mountain than Everest is. In the same way, this mountain will be more awesome than just what meets the eye. The Hebrew word used for chief, the chief of mountains, is rosh. Rosh. You've probably heard it used as Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah, which means the head of the year, the Jewish New Year. The head of the year. So Rosh means head or top. This is the head mountain. This is the top mountain. It's more than just a mountain, however. More than a mountain. What Isaiah is describing is not just a mountain. In fact, gang, biblically oftentimes mountains are synonymous with kingdoms. This is the chief kingdom, the top kingdom, the head kingdom. This is the main one. Psalm 68 verse 16 says, Why do you look with envy, O mountains, with many peaks, at the mountain which God has desired for His abode? Surely the Lord will dwell there forever. And He's talking about Jerusalem. Mount Zion. Zion speaking, even though in Jerusalem today, Zion is one of three or four different peaks there. Zion also speaks of all of Jerusalem and that mountain. Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 6 says he stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. Does that mean he's going to shatter all the mountains? Well, perhaps. But it also means that the kingdom coming will shatter all kingdoms. There is no kingdom that can bear up to it. No kingdom that can possibly compare. And possibly the greatest picture here of, of mountains as kingdoms was a, a nightmarish dream that a king had by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 2, and I'm just going to tell you about this briefly. Nebuchadnezzar had a terrifying dream. He woke up in a cold sweat. His dream was of a statue. It started out well. I have a feeling the statue looked a lot like Nebuchadnezzar. The head was of pure gold in this statue as he's admiring it. And it went on down that the chest and the arms of, of silver. And the belly then was of brass. And the, the legs were of, were of iron. 
the feet of mixture of iron and clay, and he's looking at this marvelous statue. He's going, wow, it's just amazing. And all of a sudden, a stone cut out of a mountain, but not cut out by human hands, comes flying through space and smashes into the feet of that statue. The whole thing comes apart in pieces everywhere. And all of it is blown away like chaff. And then that stone begins to build and get bigger and bigger until it's a mountain that covers the entire earth. That doesn't necessarily sound too frightening unless you're Nebuchadnezzar. You know, and unless it's your statue that just got busted up. And he sees this whole thing happening. He can't figure it out. And he brings on all the wise men. You know the story. He gets the wise men of his kingdom. And he says, tell me the meaning of my dream. And they said, tell, him, t- tell us the dream and we'll tell you the meaning. He says, no, no, no. You tell me the dream and the meaning. And that way I know you're really telling me the truth. And they're like, he's on to us. <laughs> and someone said, there's a guy who, who knows how to tell dreams and interpret them. His name is Daniel. And they bring Daniel in. And Daniel gives the most amazing prophecy, absolutely fulfilled. In fact, this prophecy is the reason why a lot of critics of Daniel try and put Daniel in a later date, because they say it's too historically accurate. It's just, it, it can, it's not possible. Daniel comes along and says, that head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, that is you, that's Babylon. And those arms and chest of silver, that's Medo-Persia, that's the next kingdom that's on the way. It's going to subvert and wipe out your kingdom. And the, the belly of brass... That belly, that's Greece. That's the next one that's coming. And then after that, the legs of, of iron. It's going to be Rome. Now, now, Daniel wasn't naming these, but he was describing these as kingdoms that would come one after the other. And historically, we see that happen. The legs of iron, Rome. You know, with two legs. Remember, Rome divided into two areas, east and west. And then the feet of iron and clay would be some kind of a revived Roman Empire, but not strong enough, really, like the legs of iron once were. And suddenly a stone not cut out with hands struck the statue and decimated it. And Daniel says in Daniel 2.45, describing this, he says, In the days of those kings, the king of the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but itself it will endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation, Daniel says, is trustworthy. Gang, number one in your notes. We're at number one now. The mountain of the kingdom. The mountain of the kingdom. As Isaiah describes a literal mountain, literal Mount Zion with a literal temple on it, and that will be God's city. That will be God's capital in the kingdom. It is also picturesque, a type of the coming kingdom that he is describing. The mountain of the kingdom, the mountain of the house of the Lord is the coming kingdom. Look at verse 2 again. It says, It will be raised up above the hills. It'll be raised up above the hills. Number two in your notes. The rising of the kingdom. The mountain is the kingdom. Number two, the rising of the kingdom. Right now, if you go to Jerusalem, depending on where you're standing, you can't even really tell that the temple is on a mount. Or that you're among mountains, but you are. You're among ridges there, in a high place there in Israel. 
And Jerusalem itself does sit among a range of mountains, but when you're in Jerusalem, it's, it's kind of hard to tell. Where's Mount Zion? That's Mount Zion? I mean, that's just, just walk up the hill and you're on Mount Zion. That's Mount Scopus? Just kind of ride the bus over there and you're on Mount Scopus. And it's, it's kind of hard to tell what's being talked about here. Psalm 48, verse 2 David wrote, Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. That right there is a prophecy. Beautiful in elevation. Something is going to happen, gang, that is going to raise the mountain higher. Geographically, that Jerusalem itself is going to get raised up. What are you talking about? There will be massive topographical changes. Massive geographical changes that are prophesied as coming for Jerusalem. book of Zechariah, which is toward the end there of the Old Testament, Hebrew Scriptures. book of Zechariah, chapter 14, verse 4. You can turn there and just listen. I'll read it. In that day His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half will move toward the south. Amazing. Jesus is going to set foot and the mountain is going to go... split apart. But it's not. that's not where it ends. Verse 8 in Zechariah 14 says, In that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. Half of them toward the eastern sea, the Mediterranean. The other half toward the western sea, the Mediterranean. And it will be in summer as well as in winter. So these living waters are going to burst out of the center of Jerusalem like these great rivers. One's going to flow toward the Med Sea, the other toward the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea, by the way, is going to be so refreshed by these living waters that people will start fishing in it. You can't even swallow it without dying today. So those of you going to Israel, don't don't swallow. Verse 9 says, The Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and His name... The only one. Now listen. All the land will be changed into a plain. From Geba to Ramon south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses and people will live in it and there will no longer be a curse for Jerusalem will dwell in security. And some pointed at that verse from the tower of Hananel and said, there's no tower of Hananel. There's no archaeological evidence of a tower of Hananel and therefore that verse is bogus. Well, they found the tower of Hananel. (laughs) What are you saying, Rick? The kingdom will rise. The mountain will rise. You have to almost imagine all of Israel flattened out and a great mountain, Mount Zion, in the middle. And that anywhere you stand in the country of Israel in that day, you can look and see the mountain of the house of the Lord. And it will rise. Which gives some sense to one of my favorite verses. Psalm 24, verse 7, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. But there's more, because Jesus set this kingdom rising in motion with His own rising. Not only will the kingdom rise, but the king rose, right? Remember that, do you remember that, right? That He rose? Gloria! Okay, He rose. Luke 17, verse 20, tells us that having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, Jesus answered them, listen, this is so important. He answered them and said, 
The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, behold, look. The kingdom of God is in your midst. The NIV translation, I believe it's the NIV that is so lame on that one. My opinion. The kingdom of God is within you. It's not what it says. He didn't say the kingdom of God is within you. He said the kingdom of God is in your midst. Do you understand what he's saying? Ain't no kingdom without a king. And the kingdom of God is within your midst. Here I am. This is where the kingdom starts. It starts with the king. He's talking about himself. When he says the kingdom of God is in your midst, he's saying it starts with me. Do you understand? And this is what I started out talking about a little while ago. This is not some esoteric, mystical statement of the kingdom like some Jedi force that is inside Christians. And yet the church has viewed it that way for years. The kingdom is within us. Well, dude, brush your teeth or something because I'm not smelling kingdom here. I'm not seeing kingdom in the way you're living your life. If you're the kingdom, if this is victory in Jesus, (laughs) really? The kingdom is Jesus. Starts with Jesus. He got the ball rolling. He's talking about Himself. Here I am. And by the way, the biggest problem with the post-millennial and the amillennial perspectives is you can't have a kingdom without a king. Now, we talk about and pray for kingdom order. You know what we're saying when we pray that? Lord Jesus, have authority over my life. I want my life to be ordered by the king as a citizen of that kingdom. But it's not just this vague, empty thing. We're all part of this kingdom. No, it's real, gang. And it is coming. And when the king himself comes, there will be an established kingdom rising up in the middle of the world. Jerusalem will be the center of the world. And we're going to be part of that. And and if we can live with that kind of understanding, boy, it really changes life here, doesn't it? I mean, so things aren't exactly what I thought they were going to be. Big deal. Well, Cheryl and I were talking about this whole health care debate and the medical stuff and all that's going on in our country. Think about how much money is spent to try and get us just a few more months of life. Now, I'm not saying people should die early. You know, Don't get me wrong here. But I'm saying if our perspective is a kingdom perspective and we're looking for the coming of Jesus, we're really not worried about the flesh. I mean, go to the doctor. Don't go dying on me. But, but, but seriously, let's worry less about this and be more focused on that. Because I'm going home when God wants me to go home anyway. Whether anybody's health care system or plan goes through, I'm going home when He wants me to. Give me the best care in the world. I'm still going to... You know, I could have the, the ultimate health care step off the curb and get hit by a bus and that's it. I'm glad I was paying so much for that thing. <laughs> the kingdom. The kingdom, the kingdom. The kingdom is coming with the king. And the kingdom in our midst is Jesus Christ. Back to Isaiah. Continuing on, it says, All the nations will stream to it, and many peoples will come. Now, now, hang on. The people of the kingdom. Number three. The people of the kingdom. Who are these nations? Who are these people that are going to stream up to Jerusalem? The nations, verse 2, the word in Hebrew is goyim. 
Jewish people even today were on to them because they used the word goy to talk about Gentiles. It's a slam. The nation, the goy. If you ever hear a Jewish person call you goy under their breath, you know that they're, they're slamming you. They are. The nations, goyim. It's a group that has a national identity. Okay, goyim. Group with a national identity. And apparently there will be those from among the nations, those who don't take the mark of the beast, those who survive that tribulation period, who will enter into the kingdom. Because there are nations there. There have to be. Matthew 25, Jesus does a judgment of the nations, right? Where He judges the sheep and the goats. And He separates the nations out. Like a shepherd shepherds his sheep and his goats. Sheep on the right, goats on the left. And he does this, and he says, hey, enter into my kingdom, because as you did to the least of these brothers of mine, so you've done it to me. He's talking about the poor? No, he's talking about Israel. Not that we shouldn't love the poor and care for poorer people. But he's talking about Israel, as you did it to Israel. You did it to me. As you did it, did not do it for Israel. You did not do it for me. And so he judges the nation. So there will be nations going into that millennial kingdom. But it's also peoples, and this is a different word. Many peoples will come. The word is Amim. Goyim and Amim. Goyim, established national identity. Amim are those who enter the kingdom without a national identity. They're not connected to any nation. They're just people, you know, who made it through the tribulation. Perhaps, you know, they gave gave their lives to Jesus at some point but didn't die, and so they enter into the kingdom as well. And in both cases, understand this, the nations and the peoples, the Goyim and the Amim, don't refer to Israel. What makes you say that? The kingdom belongs to Israel. The nations and the peoples are streaming to Jerusalem, to Israel, to the the kingdom of Israel. So we're talking about other people here. And they don't refer to the church. The nations and the peoples are not Israel and they're not the church because we are serving in that kingdom at that time. Revelation 1, Revelation 5, Revelation 20 all talk about those who are believers of Christ ruling and reigning with Him for that thousand years. So so who are these people? Gang, this is important to understand. Those of the human condition who enter into the kingdom, who are preserved alive through the tribulation, now living under the perfect rule and reign of Jesus when His kingdom comes. Quickly, turn over to Isaiah 65. Let's get a preview of something that's coming perhaps in a few months. (laughs) Isaiah chapter 65, verse 20. Yeah, verse 20. By the way, I, I'm aware I've gone long the last few weeks in, in teaching. It's, it's Isaiah's fault. I'm going to blame anyone. Verse 20, chapter 65, verse 20. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days, for the youth will die at the age of 100. And the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought a curse. What's he saying? People are going to live a long time in this millennial kingdom. You know, you're going to be a teenager at the age of 100, which is pretty cool. You know, you're going to be a hundrager. I I don't know. Anyway, verse 21. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruits, describing this kingdom. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. I don't know, but it sounds like no taxes. For as the lifetime of a tree 
so will be the days of my people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. So there will be birth in the kingdom. Human beings repopulating the world in that kingdom age. Living under the authority and the rule and reign, the perfect rule of Jesus Christ. For they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. He says, it also came to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The dust will be the, will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Now, this is often so confusing to people about the millennial kingdom. About the coming kingdom. The kingdom, it includes Jewish people who are brought through the tribulation by faith in Messiah. Okay? It includes people and nations who also survived, who didn't take the mark of the beast, and who treated Israel well, as I just described. What about those, and this is the question I've actually gotten quite a bit, what about those who previously died in faith or were raptured, who were caught up? Do we come back then and... And now, can we sin again and we have to go through this whole thing all over? No, no. Revelation 20, verse 6. We will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. That's why the rapture is such a marvelous thing. Not only do we get a seven-year honeymoon with Jesus, but we rule and reign with Him in our glorified state. In the same way Jesus was glorified right after His resurrection. Remember how he was able to move around and just show up when he needed to and for 40 days he was there, present with the apostles? That's how we'll be. Incapable of sin because we're glorified, we're in our new bodies, we're with the Lord, we're on His side. And it'll be a marvelous time. We're going to look at this more closely later in Isaiah. Lord willing and the saints don't rise. Go back to Isaiah 2 now. Verse 3, continuing. So many nations and peoples will stream into it. They'll come. They'll say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He, I love this, that He may teach us concerning His ways and that we may walk in His paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. A few years ago, Cheryl and I got to go to Jerusalem for the Epicenter Conference. You know, the Joel Rosenberg Epicenter Conference. And it was so cool you know, to go to Jerusalem for this conference. Can you imagine? And this is number four in your notes, the teaching of the kingdom. The teaching of the kingdom. Can you imagine going up for Jesus Conference year one? You know? Jesus Conference, ought five. That the people go up to hear and to be taught by Jesus Himself. Wow. Zechariah also talks about this idea of going up to learn from the Lord. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 22. Many peoples and mighty nations will come and seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days, ten men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So the Jewish people are going to be honored like they have never been honored which I think is very cool as well. But imagine this. His teaching. From Him. I'll be jobless. <laughs> I mean, forget about Pastor Rick. Let's go hear it from Jesus. 
I, I just... I mean, I hang on His every word when we're in Bible study. And when we're in prayer and we're just talking to the Lord, it's just, oh, you know, you just like like fresh living water. But can you imagine in that day His teaching, His voice, like Mary, all of us just seated around His feet, just listening. And the words will be wonderful, but just the tenor, the sound of His voice... To be there with Jesus in that time, the teaching of the kingdom. But you know what? We can do it right now. See, there is some kingdom going on. Kingdom seated. Kingdom growing in our hearts. And we can, right now, learn from Jesus who said in Matthew 11, Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you. And He says, Learn from Me. Learn from Me. The absolute best Bible teacher in the world is Jesus Christ. And you can learn from Him right now. You don't have to wait. There's a tender and beautiful balance between the prophecy of them, of then, of what's coming then, and the purpose of right now. John says in 1 John chapter 2, As for you, the anointing which you receive from Him abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in Him. That's one of the glorious things about giving your life to Jesus. It's when you give your heart to Jesus and He assumes lordship over your life, He becomes your instructor. He becomes your teacher. And yeah, it's great that we all gather and we open up the Bible and we, and we really get into it. And you have instruction here at the bridge. But Jesus would teach you every day of your life if you'll offer Him the opportunity. If you just open up to Him. Open a passage. Pray about it. Say, Lord, would you explain this to me? Would you teach me? Would you show me today what you have for today? But there's more than teaching and instruction that you can have right now. Look at verse 4. And He will judge between the nations. And He will render decisions. The word there is literally arbitrate. For many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will not lift up sword against nation. And never again will they learn or literally be trained for war. Number five, the peace of the kingdom. The peace of the kingdom. Buxbazen in his great commentary said, No prophet, lawgiver, or great teacher has ever expressed more poignantly or movingly man's ancient yearning for peace. After 25 centuries, Isaiah's vision still remains an unfulfilled dream. So long as God is defied or ignored in the affairs of men and the Prince of Peace is rejected, there can be no real peace. Put simply, gang, that's why no Tea Party, why no Arab Spring, why no Occupy movement will ever work. And I'm not trying to set myself in opposition to anyone standing up with the freedom of an American to say, we got to make some change. But gang, unless the Prince of Peace is called on, there cannot be peace. Unless the God of all peace is acknowledged, peace will continue to elude us. We will not get there. The prophet Joel describes the opposite, by the way, of Isaiah's vision. He describes where things are headed in this world, in the coming tribulation. He says in Joel 3.9, Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. 
Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Remember, it's going to be the opposite in the coming kingdom. You know, beat your swords into plowshares and beat your spears into pruning hooks. But Joel says before that happens, the opposite is going to take place where even your farming implements are going to be weapons for war. It will be so ugly and so bad. As long as there is sin in the heart of man, there will be war on this planet. As long as Satan is free to roam, there will not be peace. Peace on earth, gang, it's a pipe dream. Have you been watching Iran? Keeping an eye on things? Two weeks ago, an explosion rocked an Iranian missile development site there in Tehran, killing Iran's top guy in missile technology. And this week, just a few days ago, another blast damaged a uranium conversion plant in the city of Isfahan. Iran tried to cover it up, but it slipped out, leaked out. People are saying, what's going on with that? Some have said, well, they're just incompetent. (laughs) They don't know how to handle weapons, so they're blowing things up. And others have said the Israeli Mossad is at work. You know, Israel's secret service, their spy organization that they're infiltrating and they're bringing these things up. I don't know. I think that'd be kind of cool. My kind of movie, but I don't know. And I do confess to you that I get a little thrill about the idea of Israel taking out Iran's nuclear reactors. Amen. <laughs> get them! No, I mean, I watched the news and I think that'd be kind of awesome. I remember being there on, uh, where was it, Masada. We were up on Masada a few years ago in Israel and a couple of Israeli jets streaked across the sky, you know, headed that direction. I was like, oh, this is it. <laughs> I'm like, can they see me? You rock! (laughs) But you know what? It won't solve anything. We take out the reactors, it's not going to solve anything. The Tea Party could take over Washington, it's not going to solve anything. The Occupy movement can, I don't know, take a shower, not going to solve anything. Did that get on the recording? I think it did. <laughs> Only the Prince of Peace. Only the Prince of Peace will ever make the difference that we long for in this world. Only the Prince of Peace. Which is why the angel host sang this song at Jesus' birth, Luke 2.14, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. Now, I don't know about you, but peace doesn't come at Christmas for me. This is not a peaceful time of year. The shopping, the schedule, the family events, the, the utter mania. Or no, my favorite part of Christmas? The day after. I love that day. You know, my mom and her kerchief and I and my cap. <laughs> okay, Cheryl doesn't wear a kerchief. And I can't find my cap. But the whole idea of the long winter nap, I love that. Peace. But here's the deal. Peace comes with my king. And if the king is residing in my heart, I have peace now. And it's a peace that's unexplainable. It's a peace that, that those who have not given their lives to Jesus, they don't understand. It's like, I, I, don't, I don't get that. How can you be so chilled when all this is happening around you? I have peace. 
I have true peace. Peace comes with the King. In that day, when Jesus comes, there will be no more uranium development sites. There will be no more ballistic missiles manufactured. There will be no weapons of war, no swords, no spears. But you can have that kingdom peace right now. As much as you can have the teaching of Jesus right now, you can have His peace as well. Paul says in Philippians 4.6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Verse 5, we're almost done. Come, O house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. And number 6, that is the plea of the kingdom. The plea of the kingdom. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah pours that out. In fact, Jewish scholars will say that the language here is charged with passion and emotion and intensity. Come, house of Jacob! And Isaiah includes himself. He says, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's do this thing. Why house of Jacob? Well, a couple of reasons. One, it's a call to all the people, not just to Judah, but to the entire house of Jacob, which is all the people of Israel. Yeah, but why isn't it, come, O Israel? Come, house of Israel! You Bible students may recall, Israel means prince of God. Jacob means heel catcher. Jacob, who came up out after Esau, tried to get out first, but came out after he saw and grabbed on to his holding on to his heel. <laughs> and that would have been a really funny birth just to you know. Okay, you got a boy. You got another but wait, wait, you're losing the boy. Get him back out, you know, trying to get one out and the other's Jacob. Jacob is the carnal man. Israel is the godly prince. Now don't miss this. Jacob's the carnal man. Israel's the godly prince. Isaiah's invitation is not to the godly prince, but to the carnal man. His plea, let us walk in the light of the Lord, is not to a people who have it all together. There would be no need for that. But he is crying out to a people who desperately need to walk in the light of the Lord. You know what? That's the gospel. That's the gospel invitation. It's not to a people who have it together. It's to a people who desperately need Jesus. And Isaiah's plea, Christian brothers and sisters, Isaiah's plea is your plea. It's my plea. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's walk together with Jesus. Let's give our lives to Him. Those friends, family, members of mine who don't know Him, come, walk in the light of the Lord with me. I need Him. You need Him. Because He does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. This is the same invitation, by the way, not of Isaiah, but of Yeshua. When Jesus came on the scene, He said, Matthew 4.17, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The invitation is not just to the worthy ones, it's to those who walk in darkness, that they might see the great white of the truth. And this coming kingdom, my friends, this is true. And Isaiah is going to really lay it out for us, especially in the later chapters. I mean, it's just you're going to have this perspective of the coming kingdom that's just going to make you not want to ever do anything but just go there, you know. John said, if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. 
Most of Mount Achaia is underwater. And so when people look at it, they don't see Mount Everest. They don't see the biggest mountain in the world. They just see a mountain. It's there. They recognize it, but they don't see all of it. It's unseen, like the kingdom. Like the mountain of the house of the Lord that will be raised up, that is coming. We are part of it now. We're kind of underwater. Or underground, I guess. We are preparatory. And while it is Jesus who brings it, and Jesus who builds it, and Jesus who comes to rule and reign over it, in a time yet unseen, we are called now to walk in the light of the kingdom. As followers of Jesus Christ, come, house of God, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Father, we want to walk in Your light. And we want to be the light for You. I think I was so moved this morning, Lord, just while Rachel was praying with the worship team beforehand. And her desire that that those around her in college would see You in her. And I pray that for every one of us, that Jesus, You may be seen in our lives, that the light of, of Your grace and Your presence may be seen in us. Not that we in any way, Father, would be glorified, but that all the glory and honor would come to You. That there would be an attraction there to You, Lord Jesus. And we pray this of Your Holy Spirit, that You would be that visible in our lives. And Father, that You would seed the kingdom in this world, spread out, grow among us, deepen faith, and come quickly, Lord Jesus, and bring Your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.